I'm not positive if you guys are the um, the ones that are going to get the the better of the two sermons yet. I, I was really nervous in the first sermon because like this is my first time speaking in the auditorium and first time speaking twice back to back. So like you may you may have the better one, but don't tell them. They just they'll have to check in on the live stream and then they can they can see. Oh man, he wasn't as good the first time. All right. Um, before we get started, I have a couple of questions um, that I'd like to ask. They're kind of easy duh questions, right? So feel free to raise your hand uh, in response to these questions. Um, who here has or had parents? Yeah, I mean, I think if, if there's a hand down, we got a problem, right? Okay. And my second question is, who here in the room is a parent? I get to keep my hand up with you guys now because, like, I'm, I now have my own child. My wife and I have Griffin, and he's two months old. And there's something funny that I've known about being a dad for a long time, because I have my own dad, right? And now I am a dad, and my siblings will tell you I've probably been a dad longer than these last two months, because, you know, growing up as the oldest of six, you kind of just adopt being the second dad in the house, right? But we kind of get a bad rap in a funny way for being, you know, dads, right? We have these jokes and these phrases that we say that are, like, they don't make sense, at least to the kids, or or even they're more annoying to our wives when they hear us like, you've said that how many times? You know, like, stop. You know, these dadisms, right? We, we call them dadisms. And uh, I mean, like, you know, when I was a kid, you know, that's, okay, that's when we know we're about to get a long lecture of how they walked up and down the hill to school both ways in the snow, right? And then, you know, were you born in a barn in response to like your kid doing something that you're like, just knock it off, right? And they're just like, just tell me what you mean, dad. Um, and when I was studying like this, this chapter here, Paul, Paul kind of, he is a, he is a father uh, figure to these Corinthians, right? So he's, in this chapter, he kind of, he speaks in metaphors. And so I studied dadisms, right? To kind of see like, what, what is, what, is, what are dadisms per se? Like, I know they're metaphors, but what really are they? There's got to be a purpose behind why we say what we say. Well, it, we, we usually pick them up from someone, but they usually have a meaning, Right. Some of, some of them, they're still funny, but they're more serious. Like, we'd say to our kid, if, if your friend jumps off a cliff, would you jump too? Like, no, we're not talking about jumping off a cliff. We're talking about peer pressure. Uh, hard work never killed anybody, the value of hard work. Um, don't talk to your mother that way. Like, respect for women, um, respect for your mother, right? These phrases aren't just something that we say and just like, here, I'm just going to drop this nugget of wisdom on you and just walk away and just not explain it, Right? No, they're more of an introduction to something that we want to teach them, right? We're going we're gonna to dive deeper into what we're saying. It's just more of a, a jumping off point. So Paul, you know, like I said, he's, he's been talking to the Corinthians from a spiritual father position um, through the first eight chapters that we've studied. And now in chapter nine, he kind of takes a deviation. He goes off and he starts talking in metaphors. He starts using these dadisms to bring attention to an issue that he is really concerned about. Probably the most important issue that he sees that is affecting the Corinthians. We'll start here in chapter 9, verse 1. And follow along if you have your Bibles with me. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? He once again is claiming apostleship, which... You know, he's been answering his skeptics for a while. Like, he just keeps talking about, like, I am who I am, right? And 
explaining apostles, um, the church would consider those who have seen Jesus physically, right, to be the apostles. Like Jesus had the disciples. There's the 12 disciples, then there was 11, and then they added a 12. And then there was Jesus' brothers, like James, who writes, writes the book of James later on in the New Testament. And then Paul, he claims to be an apostle, right? Well, how does he, like, he, we don't hear about him in the Gospels, right? No, he, we see in Acts that Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus and called him to be a servant of Jesus. And then the apostles confirmed him later on. Verse 2, if I am not an apostle to others, yet indeed I am to you, for you are my seal, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Seals were used at this time um, as a proof of legitimacy of the message that was being sent, right? You knew who was stamping their approval on the message that was being sent by the seal of the person um, that sealed it. And that usually was a, like a king or a, or a governor, right? He then decides to further address his skeptics in verses 3 through 6. He says that this is my answer to those who examine me. Do we have no right to eat and to drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? When he's talking about eat and drink, it's, it's more of a reference back to the Lord's Prayer. When you know, Jesus commands his disciples that we are to pray, give us this day our daily bread. He's, he's not talking just about food. He's talking about the, the needs, the personal daily needs that you would need uh, in order to exist, right? And when he's referencing to take along a believing wife, Paul probably was not married. We see that in chapter 7 when Pastor Joel was speaking on that. Most likely, he was against marriage uh, for himself, and he kind of had a, a... He would prefer that most people would choose singleness as himself, right? But it's not necessarily talking about um, the fact of marriage, but it's the possibility of maybe even Barnabas having a family that he needed to support. Um, these missionary journeys were not something that just, you know, you hopped on a plane and you flew, right? You, you were on the road for two to three years traveling. Like, they might not see you. They're going to grow up without you. And if, you know, in that time, it was hard for women to really take care of their homes, right? So if Barnabas was married, he's, he's talking about like, hey, we need to doesn't he have the right that when he's doing the Lord's work that his family should be taken care of? Apparently, the Corinthians hadn't had any problems supporting any other apostle that had come and visited their church. Uh, he's, he, he mentions uh, Peter personally, uh, Cephas, um, as one of them, because we know from the Gospels that you know, he was married. Um, and they, they had no problem with um, those people. Yet the very ones who had brought them the good news of the gospel and had spent two to three years establishing the church and meeting their spiritual needs were now being completely disrespected. I have another example here. And the first crowd didn't get it at first, I don't think. I didn't get the response I was looking for, so no pressure. But um, who here has tied their or taught their child how to tie their shoes? You're all wrong, okay? You're all wrong. No, you didn't teach them because I guarantee you, they come home from school, they come home from grandma's house, they came home from somebody else's house, and no matter how many times you put that shoe on their foot, 
And no, many how, no matter how many times you took the laces, chased that rabbit around the tree and into the hole, like somebody else taught them, right? Because they didn't, they didn't get it from you. They got it from somebody else. That's how Paul really feels at this point. Like he's like, we've done all these things for you, and yet you're not, you're not, you're not realizing this. He continues to argue his point with more metaphors in the following verses. Verse 7, who goes to war at any time at his own expense? Who's going to pay to join the military? Who's going to buy their own rations? Who's going to buy their own equipment? It's not going to happen, right? Who plants a vineyard Who um, and doesn't eat of its fruit? Or who feeds a flock and doesn't drink of the flock's milk? Like, who, if they're doing the work, like, shouldn't they, you know, like, aren't they probably going to take of it and use it for themselves, right? Paul then uses the Old Testament uh, law of Moses to kind of explain that it's not just his um, his authority that like that he's claiming these things, but that God in the Old Testament has established this. In verse 8, do I say these things as a man or does the law not say the same thing also? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the mouth of the ox while it treads out grain. He's not talking about like the oxen, right? Like he's 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 talking about the the principle that is laid in the Old Testament where like when there was an ox that was out treading uh the, and the whatever was in the field if they were plowing or whatever they you didn't put a bag over their mouth to keep them from stooping down and eating of the whatever was left on the ground like no if you wanted them to work you were going to encourage them to work by giving them the ability to feed. Uh, this is pretty much a, a direct quote of Deuteronomy 25.4. Um, even animals were supposed to be taken care of for their hard work. Continuing on in verse 9, he asks a question, a couple questions. Is, is God concerned about oxen or does he say it completely for our sake? Like, once again, another dad thing to do. You ask a question before you tell them the answer, right? He says, for our sake, no doubt, this is written so that he who plows should plow in hope and that he who threshes in hope should partake of his hope. He explains further that even though the law spoke of these animals, it's really talking about those who own the animals that are growing the fields. Those are the ones that are actually seeing the most return from their investment, right? That's, that's the reason it's happening. The, the animal's not out there just doing it. There's someone behind that plow right? They're trying to take care of their own families. So in verse 11, Paul follows up this metaphor with a logical question for the Corinthians. Verse 11, if we have sown for you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we shall reap your material things? Shouldn't the work that he and Barnabas are, that they've done among them, shouldn't we, shouldn't they be allowed to take the same things that they're willingly giving to Peter and Jesus' brothers? Paul then implies, again, in verse 12, the same thing, that, like, shouldn't we expect those things? But this is where the introduction is. This is where the dadisms end. And even though Paul continues, if you've read any of his books, you know he loves metaphors, right? It's just like a dad. You, you try to break yourself of saying these things. You're not gonna. You're, you're a dad. Just accept it, right? Verse 12, nevertheless... Nevertheless, or in other words, in spite of all this, in spite of the complete disregard for their physical well-being, in spite of the hypocritical nature of Paul's spiritual children, in spite of the fact that these are Paul and Barnabas's God-given rights, nevertheless, we have not used this right 
but suffer all things lest we might hinder the gospel of Christ. Paul reveals that his whole purpose for using this argument, these metaphors, is to explain that it's all about the gospel. Indeed, they are willingly suffering the injustice and the inconvenience of not being compensated for their labors, which has led to physical hardship and discomfort. I mean, how many times did Paul, you know, get stoned and left for dead? How many times did he, was he put in prison, you know, shipwrecked? We know all these stories, and yet the Corinthians were not acknowledging this. All that matters to him is that the world still needs the gospel. Paul still has a few more metaphors or examples to make sure they're, that they're not misunderstanding what he's trying to say. Verse 13. Do you not know that those who minister unto holy things live from the things of the temple? And do you not know that those who wait at the altar partake of the altar? In the same way, the Lord has ordained that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Paul's again referring to the Old Testament, the, the, the law of Moses. And if you've read in the Old Testament, you know that God had his chosen people, the Israelites, right? And there was 12 tribes. Well, he took one tribe and he set them apart to do only the work of the holy things, the, the temple, the tabernacle in Deuteronomy that we're about to read. It started in the tabernacle and it continued on. And it even was at, to this day, at the time of the writing, Paul's, Paul knows, according to his Jewish heritage, there are still the Levites serving in the temple there in Jerusalem. Um, God set up a way for them to be taken care of because they didn't plant fields. They weren't raising animals for food. They didn't do these things. God had set them apart and commanded that they do only these things. And so, but God's not going to leave them without a way to live, to survive, right? Deuteronomy 18 verses 1 through 8, the Levitical priests and all the tribe of Levi will not have any portion or inheritance with Israel. They must eat the offerings of the Lord made by fire in his portion. They will have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance, just as he has said to them. This shall be the priests due from the people, from them that offer a sacrifice, whether it be an ox or sheep. They shall give to the priests the shoulder, the cheeks, the stomach. You must give them of the first of your grain, your wine, your oil, the first of the fleece of your sheep also. For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand to minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons forever. Um, Jesus, as a part of the triune God that we serve, he set up, he also was involved in setting up this Levitical law. And in the New Testament, in Matthew, he, he, gives a, he follows the example that he himself set for the Levites by how he sent his apostles out. In Matthew 10, verses 9 through 10, Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper for your purses, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor shoes, nor even staffs, for the workman is worthy of his keep. So, like, when Jesus sent them out, he didn't say, like, you know, go home, pack your bags. You know, go work a, you know, a couple overtime shifts to save up a little extra so you can go. No, go. Don't worry about money. Don't worry about anything but the clothes on your back. Go spread the gospel. That's what I'm telling you. And I will provide for you. Paul then returns to a lesson and doubles down and makes it clear that he has no intention of exercising these rights over them. Um, in fact, it has nothing to do with why he's defending their ability to claim these rights. Verse 15, but I have used none of these rights, nor have I written these things, that it should be done so to me. For it would be better for me to die than allow anyone to make my boasting void. The word boast here isn't used as a like 
the way we use it nowadays. It's not like a self-serving attitude. No, it's, it's referring to Paul's feeling of personal joy and satisfaction in being used to take the gospel around the world. Much like the feeling of pride we have as we train up our children in the way of the Lord, we teach them that Jesus loves them, and hopefully one day we are able to lead them to the Lord the same way that that is nothing in and of ourselves that we can do, God allows us to be a part. Our labor is not in vain, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Verses 16 and 17, Paul says, Though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for the requirement is laid upon me. Yes, woe unto me if I do not preach the gospel. So if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a commission. The word commission here is the Greek word okonomia. I think I said that right. I don't know. I don't, I'm not Greek. Um, is where we get the word commission, stewardship. Paul is referring to the responsibility that he has as if, it, if he were the highest servant, the one in charge of the master's house in one of the most extravagant homes in Corinth. Like, that's who he is. If he never receives the material benefits for preaching the gospel, for his labors, it doesn't matter because he's supposed to do his master's will. It is his duty, and the reward is all in how the duty is viewed. The gain of the master is the gain of the one employed. But Paul asks another question and follows up with another answer. He asks in verse 18, what is my reward then? His answer is truly that when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge so that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. At this time in Corinth, it was very common for there to be traveling, you know, preachers or prophets, right, who had you know, the answers to all the problems that were there in Corinth. They, they went around getting a following and getting them to gather around them and they would preach them, they would raise their money and then they would leave, right? And these people would be like, where'd they go? Like they had put all their money into them and these people were just like making out like bandits. And Paul has no interest in doing that with the gospel. Like his point and his reward is that he can, is that he has shared this message of, of freedom and he hasn't charged anyone for it. Paul then explains how he has gone about sharing the gospel around the world in the following verses as we get towards the end of the chapter. Verse 19, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself servant to all, that I might win even more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are outside the law as outside the law, being not without God's law, but under Christ's law, that I might win those who are outside the law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. This I do for the gospel's sake, that I might partake of it with you. Paul is in these verses explaining to the Corinthians that he has taken some great lengths to share the gospel with everyone that he's come in contact with. He became as a Jew and as under the law in order to reach his native Jewish people, the, the people of his heritage. He was willing to adhere to the Mosaic law it, to even certain extreme degrees that he no longer had to because Jesus had already fulfilled the law. But he was willing to do that in order that he might share the freedom of Christ with those Jews. He became um, as outside the law 
um, to those who are outside the law. He's not talking about, once again, sinful ways of outside the law. We talked about last week, um, Pastor Larry brought to our attention, that there is, there's a license to sin and then there's the, a way of following Christ and honoring him. And we're not talking about that. He, he's following the law of God perfectly or attempting to in order to reach these people. He became weak, once again referring to last week's sermon. Um, he wasn't above not doing a certain something, whatever it was, in order to be able to get the respect of someone so he could then present the gospel to them. He became all things to all men. Paul's dedicated so much to the commission that God has given him and is glad to ignore any other believers who may have questioned his methods. Not, he's not doing this in a prideful way, but in the freedom that Christ has offered him. Um, his only reason for doing any of this was for the sake of the gospel. In the last few verses of this chapter, Paul once again uses metaphors because that's, that's what he likes to do. And he uses something that would have been very common um, in those days and something they would have understood very clearly. Do you not know, verse 24, do you not know that all those who run in a race run, but one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Everyone who strives for the prize exercises self-control in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible one. So therefore I run, not with uncertainty. uncertainty. So I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I bring and keep my body under subjection, lest when preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. The reason why this would have been easy for the Corinthians to understand because Corinth was the center um, and the hub for the second most popular games that would be hosted on in, in Greece at that time. Like the, we had the Olympic Games and then there was the Isthmian Games. And so it's not too much of a stretch to think that these people that were listening to his message, there might be some of them who at that point were practicing and pre preparing to go run in this race. Paul's using these athletic comparisons so that way they can truly understand what he's trying to say to them. In verse 24, Paul points out the only point um, in, in running a race, and that's to win. Sticking with that analogy, we, we, we all love the Olympics, right, when they come on. And there's this podium that they set up for the winners, right? They, there's the third place, the second place, and the first place, bronze, silver, and gold. Now, if we're honest, nobody starts training for the Olympics planning on getting the bronze or the silver medal. Like... When they win it, they're ecstatic because, I mean, in the moment, like, they did the best that they could, and that's what they got, right? But they're preparing to win the gold, right? If they're a true competitor, they're going to use that fact of maybe even, we see it all the time with um, the Olympics. Like, they, they talk about these people that are, like, the underdogs. They don't even mention them, right? And then all of a sudden, they come out of nowhere, and they win that race, and it's like, whoa. Like, they, they use that fuel um, of how people know nobody was paying attention to them to really strive for the gold. That takes self-control. Paul talks about that in verse 25. He, he's talking about how like we all have competitiveness in our nature and we all want to be great. But I guarantee that if you were to wake up tomorrow and want to go out and run a marathon, 
and you wanted to do it in two hours, one minute and 39 seconds, you couldn't do it. That is the world record right now. Like nobody just wakes up in the morning and says, I'm just gonna go out and run 26.3 miles and that's gonna be my time. Like it's not gonna happen. You're gonna have a regimen that you're gonna strictly adhere to as you prepare to try to beat that time. Because if that's the top time, you're not going to practice running a marathon if you're not planning on beating it. Now, I'm not a marathon runner. I don't like running in general, unless there's like bases or like, I like to sprint. But what we're talking about is not like a sprint. We're talking about a long race, something that you can't just like, you know, I could wake up and run a 40 yard dash and then tomorrow just not get out of bed. But we're talking about like, they, there's this self-control that they, these people are exhibiting in order to win what Paul states in the next verse as a perishable crown, a corruptible crown, something that at that time, when you won those races, when you, whatever game you were, event you were in, you would win a wreath that you would place on your head made out of fresh foliage. And that in and of itself was a marker of the new life that you now had. Like you didn't just win a race and like all of a sudden like, oh, that was, that was it. And I just go home, you know, and feel good about it. No, like we still see Michael Phelps on all the commercials, right? Like he won all of those gold medals. He's in the public eye forever. Like that, that they, back then it was actually a complete change of life. Like nowadays there, I mean, there is there monetary compensation. I'm sure there is, but back then it was like you won and you were it. Like you might've been the lowest of the low but you won and now you have fame, you have fortune, and your whole life has changed. Paul is basically dismissing these as completely forgettable. Like these are corruptible crowns. Don't even worry about those. There's always gonna be another race. There's always gonna be another winner. It's very common to see someone win anything. I mean, any sport or somebody's like the next big music star, right? They, the reason why there's always the next season of the American Idol is because there's another American Idol coming up next, right? Because we can't, so we don't settle for that. We, we want what's next. It's either, sometimes it's going to be someone who does it to themselves by wasting their entire, you know, winnings. And then like, next thing you know, you're like, whoa, where'd they go? Or possibly it's just because like life moves on. You know, last year, the Buccaneers won the world, uh, the Super Bowl. I mean, who's going to win it this year? We're not worried about last year. Paul indicates that what one has to gain from running the race that Christ has given us to run, that there is a reward that there's no way that it could ever be forgotten. It'll never be outdone and it'll never be lost. We are striving for eternal rewards. Verses 26 and 27, Paul states, once again, like he says that we don't run aimlessly. Like there is a purpose for why we are running this race. You know, we want to win. Um, and in the, in, he talks about how he is exhibiting self-control from verse 25. He, he now uses personal um, explanations of how he has practiced this self-control. The fact that he had the apostolic rights that he, that he was owed and he was ignoring them. He's willing to become all things to all men. That's how much he is dedicated to the gospel. The term disqualified here in verse 27 is the Greek word adokamos, meaning not approved or not standing the test. People have tried to use this as an argument for how someone could lose their salvation, which 
that if we're reading the scripture in context, that's not how Paul means this metaphor at all. He's, if we compare scripture with scripture, as Paul, he's written most of the New Testament, there, we have so many times we see where he's been preaching and he doesn't speak of salvation as something to attain. It's more of something that you receive, right? So what Paul wants the Corinthians to know is that eternal rewards are at stake. There's the crown of life. James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he is tried, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. There's a crown of glory, 1 Peter 5, verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of glory that will not fade away. The crown of righteousness, 2 Timothy 4, verse 8. From now on, a crown of righteousness is laid up for me, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. We don't necessarily know exactly what these rewards are, but Paul is speaking of them as fact, like they exist. These rewards that God, that God has prepared for those who are dedicated to him and that they're going to last forever. So when I was studying this, this chapter in preparing for this message, God really worked on my heart. And he, he gave me five statements that I want to leave with you that, that since I've become aware of them, I really want to um, apply them to my own life. And I hope that God will be able to use them in your lives as well. My first application is this. A proper response to the gospel should be a desire to personally invest in the continued furtherance of the gospel. When we come to know the Lord and he changes our life, he, he saves us from our sins and makes us into that new creature, we're given a new nature. And with that new nature, we're given the same commission that Paul, that the apostles, that Christians for centuries past have been given. We've been given the requirement to share the good news. It reminds me of... Uh, I had a friend the other day on Facebook add me, right? And somebody I hadn't seen since college. And so I went over there and I clicked on it and added him. And he, he sent me a message right away and was like, hey, how you doing? Whatever. We'd start talking. And a couple days later, he messaged me again. And um, he's like, hey, I got a question for you. You know, can I, could I have a conversation with you about this product? I mean... Uh, man, now I've got a pyramid scheme. I thought you actually wanted to, to talk to me like we were friends, right? <laughs> he, they, care, they, they care so much now, like these people on Facebook all the time. I see it all the time. They're just like, who do I know that I can sell my product to, right? And they invest in that. Like they actually believe what they're selling. They're not like, I don't want to sell them short. Like they actually, it, it works for them. That's great. And maybe if I would trust them, it would work for me too, but I'm not necessarily interested in that, right? So, but like you see on Facebook, like they, they've got all the links you could ever need to, to understand exactly why this will work for your exact situation, no matter what it is, right? Can you imagine if we took the gospel that seriously? Can you imagine if we invested our time, our our resources in sharing the gospel with our family, our friends, our coworkers. I'm not advocating for becoming that, like where I go on Facebook tomorrow and I see everybody shared some like, like this is exactly who I am. Like, no, that's great. Like if you want to do that, but if we're 
truly following Christ, if we're following after his example, like these things are going to come naturally to us. We're going to have that personal um, connection to what we are not selling. We're sharing. We're giving it for free. There's no cost. It will change everyone's life. There's no doubt about that. We could give to missions. Like I know that it, there's a bad rap around churches for like, well, they just want money all the time. Like, I'm not saying that there are churches out there like that, but that doesn't take away the fact that like you don't, we aren't here in this building today, you know, just because, you know, it's free. No, when, when we give to the work of God, we're able to reap these rewards, right? So if we give to, to missions, like we're sending the gospel to places we will never, ever interact with. We're able to serve in these children's uh, Bible studies. I, we were supposed to have one uh, first service. I said we were going to have one downstairs, but it got canceled. So don't show up tomorrow if you're planning on helping because it's not happening. But th- we're, we have the, the opportunity to be able in the school uh, right over here uh, in the, the next block over and share the gospel with these, these children and really make a difference in their life. It's not always about money. It's about your time. It's about your resources. We have, we have more to offer than just what, you know, what our bank account states about us. Um, second application. The gospel does not have a dependency on or find itself limited because of physical, sociological, or financial barriers. This isn't a contradiction of what I just said. It's more of a encouragement that literally... It's not up to us. Like, the fact that we are allowed to be a part of God's work should be humbling. That our sovereign God, before the, before the world was even formed, before we even existed, God ordained that we would be his method of sharing the gospel. That is very humbling. The fact that we know that in the Psalms it says that if we were to be silent, that the rocks would even cry out. But the fact that God has given us that that job to do. Application number three, we have no we have nothing to boast of for our part in sharing the gospel because we are commissioned by God and directed by the Holy Spirit. God gave us this responsibility, and He is the one that's doing the work. In, in and of ourselves, we can't do it. So God gives us this commission, and he has given us the Holy Spirit that is empowering us to do this. Application number four, the gospel empowers us to reach people where they are without compromising truth. So it's important to realize that there are a lot of people out here in the world today that they they claim to be a Christian, they claim to love God, and they claim that they want to Tell everyone. They want everyone to know God, right? And I'm not going to judge their heart. That's, that's, that's between them and God. But we do know that there, according to last week's sermon with Pastor Larry, there are black and white issues and there are gray issues. What Paul has emphasized in this passage is that when he goes outside the law, he's not talking about like, like, well, you can just do whatever, like, I'm going to join a gang so I can, you know, become one of them so that I can then win them. Like, maybe, maybe God would allow you to do that if that's so, but I don't think that that would be wise, right? There's, there's the, the right way to do things and the wrong way to do things. 
And when there are gray areas, we're not to judge those. But it is important to know that what is sin is sin. And when we, there is no way that we can do God's work in and of ourselves. So if, when we sin, as we will, God, in spite of our shortcomings, works through us. Even when we do fail and sin, he's able to make things work together for good. And then point number five, the gospel is our only hope to run a worthy course before God. God's calling all of us to run this race, this, the life of a Christian. Like if you know him as your personal savior, you're called to run this race. When you got saved, it was as if the, the starting gun had fired and you were off the blocks, right? We may start off as if it's a sprint, but it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. Too often we get off to a great start and then life happens. We get busy and miss out on meeting with God in, in our quiet time, studying his Bible and praying. We get sidetracked by trivial things and we dabble in things that we shouldn't because we know we shouldn't and it really sets us back. There's a reason why Paul in all of his writings is exhorting or encouraging those that they are to walk worthy of the calling that God has put on them. As Christians, in Galatians 5, 7, he says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? And in Hebrews, he's, he talks about putting aside the, the weights that easily beset us or slow us down. We may, we may have the will to do better, but we cannot do anything in our own power to make the changes that we need to make. The key is the gospel. Only when we put the gospel key in the ignition of our spiritual life can we see the victory that is possible in Christ. If you're here and you're, you're not sure um, if you're saved, that today is a perfect day to, to join the race, to, to come to know who Christ is and what he has done for you. And those who are struggling with their faith. I don't want to say this to cause doubt, but if, if you don't feel a desire to, to seek after God, when he's given you many methods and many ways to, to, to be able to spend time with him, his Bible, his word that is given to us, the, the fact that we are allowed to pray at any time and he's here, and he promises that he will hear us. If you don't feel those desires, then maybe we should examine our life and see, do we need to come to know God for the first time? Like, do we really, do we need to start that race? Christians, may we run a race that brings honor and glory to God. Can we, I want to commit in my own life now to, now that I know what I've, from, from God's word, and I've read this before, but God, as I was studying this really put on my heart all the, these things that he taught me. These are personal things that I want to live out daily. I want to think about these things. So let's do our best to run a race that brings honor to our Savior. Let's pray.